Metricast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now, this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley! That was Wesley's Al Pacino because today we are discussing a movie from 1992, this year's Thanksgiving selection, (laughs) Scent of a Woman. This is counter-programming. Isn't this like the beginning of the Al Pacino yelly phase? I think this is the one (laughs) that most people base their impressions on. Kevin Pollack, all his Al Pacino impressions end with hoo-ah, except he pronounces it (laughs) hoo-ah. When I think of scene chewy, I think of Gary Oldman in Leon, and I think of Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman. Okay. And this is Al Pacino, star of The Godfather, considered one of the best actors of his generation, if not of all time, his only Oscar. Frankly, this is Al Pacino to the letter to me. This is Al Pacino's epicenter of everything else. And everything else before, he looks a little bit too young. And everything later, he looks old. It's mostly what I know him for. This seems like a dad movie through and through. Did you watch this with dad? Uh, no, I don't think so. This is Martin Brest, man. This is the follow-up, one of one of his follow-ups to Beverly Hills Cop, one of the best directors of the 80s and 90s, early 90s. This, this being not only 1992, but I think Chris O'Donnell says something to the effect of, like, it's no longer the 90s. Or who says that? Yeah, he says the 80s are over, Freddie. But about the Ferraris. Oh, right. The most unrealistic scene of all of Scent of a Woman. <sighs> is the colonel taking the Ferrari out for a test drive. When he sweet talks Freddie Bisco, known from coast to coast like butter on toast. (laughs) He's smooth like that. Right? Yeah, well, he's, I mean, he does a lot of sweet talking. That's kind of his thing. But then the fact that, I mean, as Colonel, as Colonel Frank Slate, no? I don't know. All of Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade's advice to Charlie, almost without exception, is bad advice. It's like the advice he gives to his cat before he leaves. Every life lesson 
he gives him is kind of bad. And so he is, and he's, he's constantly obsessed with women. He plies Charlie with alcohol before he tells him his, his story or whatever. And, and he, he talks himself out of tickets and lies and, and, and cheats and stuff and is a horrible example with his family to Charlie. It's hard to take him seriously. And yet, with every lady to whom, with whom he's on the phone, it's, it's all sweet talk and all smooth. And I, I don't know if it's sincere. After seeing him go all nuts and threaten to burn the Baird school down with a blowtorch, Miss Downs chases him outside <laughs> to talk to him. And then he thoroughly charms her and like, we should discuss it sometime. Isn't it seconds after she says something to him? He's like, are you married? Right. It's his first words to her. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no. And you can see it. It's work. He's working it on her. And I don't know which part to believe it, uh, it does he have a soft side a caring side absolutely under the facade that he's built for himself you know with his disability and and just his life of of hardship and and pain he's got built-in insulation and protection but I, I have no doubt that it's there but that's not what's front facing and so it's hard for me to look at him and be like he is an attractive man i guess like there are like women the country over and men who like who are all about the tough authoritative alpha male right yeah i mean especially in an 80s and 90s sense it, it just so happens that this one is forced to rely on someone else because of the injury he sustained which is a constant threat and injury to his bride right but I, i'm not sure if that per i guess that personality is wildly appealing to some people it's like a Jared Vennett. He's so obvious in his self-service that you kind of like him or you kind of trust him. Yeah, I, I guess he is an endearing character. I will say he's magnetic. Al Pacino steals, I think, every scene he's in. I can't stop watching him. And that is a major feat, considering I'm watching him while he's dancing with Gabrielle Anwar uh, to the tango. You know how, how synonymous Colonel Slade is to Al Pacino for me in this movie? How synonymous. Well, so this was one of, this is a, a major Al Pacino role, and it's how he came to prominence for me. I have obviously followed Al Pacino after this, and I backtracked to his earlier movies. But in every single one, after Scent of a Woman, I'm suspicious of that dude's eyesight forever. I'm always a little bit convinced that he's faking it, and he's like pretending he can see <laughs> <laughs> because if he's not looking people in the eye, he feels blind to me. I wonder if it's like a scent of a woman tick that he developed in, you know, preparation and execution of this movie. I mean, it sounds like he was deep into this character and this character's disabilities. Legend has it that he wrote Chris O'Donnell that letter that they talk about in the DVD extras. Have you read that? Yes, where he says, I hear that you were great. I didn't really see you, but everyone tells me your performance was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right? So maybe he just can't shake it. Maybe he's got like permanent wandery eye or maybe he like injured his retinas by like the incessant wandering. Yeah, he just it, sometimes that that process never leaves you. He's a method actor or something. That was Chris O'Donnell read that letter out loud at, at Al Pacino's AFI uh, awards presentation. Uh, oh. Chris O'Donnell came back from like NC NCIS world and was like, I remember when I was a movie actor and Al Pacino wrote me this letter. Is that what he's doing? I got Sin of a Woman. I got Circle of Friends. I got Batman and Robin or Batman Forever. And that's really it. But good for Chris O'Donnell. Oh, dude, he's done like 400 episodes of NCIS. Well, that's where he's been. And that makes sense to me. 
But I think he's got that innocence that lasts. He was, you know, 21 or whatever, which is about, he was, it wasn't a high school student, right? Or he was. He was. Like a prep His character school, was. Right. But he was actually yeah. around 21. You know, he, he's the guy who looks innocent in the face and he's a big cutie or whatever. But I don't think that he made Slade into a different person. I think that Slade, he awakened the long dormant conscience. The central tension of this movie is between these characters' dynamic. There's Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, who is nothing if not experienced in the ways of the of world. I mean, this guy has seen some stuff, and he's come back from it. Seen and then some there's, stuff, kind of. He's been around, I'll put it that way. And obviously he's in contrast to Charlie Sims' incredible innocence and naivete and he's kind of facing one of the hardest decisions situations in his very short life so like they're constantly pushing and pulling and sims draws kind of that humanity that he's buried so deep out of slade and then slade is just kind of toughening up (laughs) opening the eyes so to speak of the charlie sims character yeah he got him to swear he's like theologue He's like all virtuous or whatever. And then like when he's all broken down that he he got him to start swearing back. That's where they met somewhere deep in the middle. Uh, No one knows what Theologue is. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, he does get him to swear. But he also is swearing in like the at the height of his his demonstration of his character and his integrity. Right. He's going to he will stop at nothing to prevent Slade from ruining a life that still has potential. He's got a lot of good. He's just in pain. That's true, as Charlie points out. But I don't know that he's completely a good guy. No, he's self-proclaimed rotten. Right. He says, I'm rotten. I'm no good. And you kind of believe it because as much as we hate Randy and uh, Willie, the older brother, I, I don't think that Frank is wrong in his assessment. He seems like when Mrs. Rossi says deep down he's a teddy bear, I'm like, really? Where? How deep are we going here? Because he seems like a miserable old dude, and he is. It's interesting that this movie doesn't give any real... Apparently, it's based on a book, which I didn't know. But the movie gives no future prospects whatsoever to Colonel Slade, except maybe potentially being able to woo... Ms. Downs, so that he can eventually wake up to her, then and she'll still be there, all warm and funky, and wrapped up around him. Maybe, but he's not gonna like go on to be a daredevil-style blind lawyer or a motivational speaker or anything based on his bared school speech. He's gonna go back to his little hut in the backyard, and he's gonna talk to Franny and Willie or whatever, and that's kind of it. And maybe they'll, you know, have Christmas or Thanksgiving or something later. But, I mean, hopefully. I hope for good things. But the turn is only enough to extend himself one extra degree to show up where he wasn't expected to show up. Other than that, it's all been in service of his goal. His goal to off himself? Well, yeah, but not doing that and going home instead to to do maybe do it again or do it later. The only thing that he did that wasn't in service of his original goal was didn't pull the trigger for an extra day and to show up at the Baird School on Charlie's behalf. I definitely got a sense of Charlie just bought Slade some time. Right. And Slade's performance at the Baird School could have been like his redemption moment that would have allowed him to like off himself and with a better conscience. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe he might have he maybe he might feel better about himself when he does do it. Yeah, I definitely got the sense that Slade isn't 
going to be cured by a weekend in New York with Charlie Sims, but rather Charlie Sims just bought him some time. I, I agree. So you kind of fear for him, which makes it not exactly a feel-good Thanksgiving movie, uh, even though it's centered over the Thanksgiving uh, extended weekend or whatever, but it makes for a compelling character that's not one-dimensional and for a story that's not all nicely wrapped up in a holiday bow. Yeah, even um, even good old Chuck is going to have to pay for his new newfound celebrity at Bay. Charles. His L- name is Charles. You can say that, can't you? Ranger Chokehold. A little more pressure, bust your windpipe. <laughs> Uh, that's a way to bust up a Thanksgiving dinner. Man, he was asking for it, though. Who, Randy? Telling the story and talking trash to him, to Charlie. And he's like, I was going to leave, but now I'm not going. He's using his echolocation to identify exactly where Randy <laughs> is in the room. And he's sitting, he's sitting and taking it until it's time to not take it anymore. Uh, he has, like, the exact location of his throat pinpointed. Oh, man. Randy is definitely poking the bear, but when Slade gives Randy the first warning, I'm like, uh-oh, it's coming. <laughs> but then it comes with such swift and sudden violence that I was shocked when it did. And he, he even says Chuck like kind of like... Yeah, but he, he says um, it deliberately after he tells him right? not, and then he calls him Chucky. I was like, whoa! And maybe, I mean, that's just a credit to the filmmakers because they it makes it feel so scary. Um, yeah, he was he was kind of a punk. I'm not sure why the brother didn't intervene more. Maybe his passiveness was meant to be an extra contrast with his brother's kind of aggressiveness. But yeah, Randy does all the talking. And Charlie and Willie, I guess, are surprisingly passive in that scene. Yeah. Um, thinking about it now, we probably needed that outburst of violence for some legitimacy to his storied military career and him being a tough guy. And that comes pretty late stage in the movie, in, a, in an absurdly long movie, uh, which I didn't really realize until this feeling. But it makes a lot of sense. And it has some weight behind his fire and brimstone. And it's not all talk. Yeah, it's like the Jack must kill Halloran murder. Right? That's really the only time he is possibly unhinged and not just an army a grenade juggling army officer who's all bluster yeah i think his alienation total total alienation from his family this kind of cemented that for me because obviously he he doesn't think much of his of the rossi family that he lives with but this extended family too he's completely alienated and it was also necessary for charlie to know that he's serious yeah, that's a good point, that he w- might actually go through with it right? Uh, at the hotel. Because that's a tough scene, but it's also pretty early into that scene, I could tell in the hotel that he wasn't going to do it. You don't know. Like he, really? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> this wasn't, this isn't Million Dollar Baby, spoiler, but you don't know what he was going to do. You got to have the stakes. And like, it felt pretty dangerous to me when he's got his gun on, you know, got his uniform on, he's full and he's got the gun and not only going to kill himself and like, please leave, please. I don't want you to see this. He's like, I'm going to kill you too. 
because your life is over. <laughs> now that I didn't expect, but a dude like Colonel Slade, if you're gonna, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He's going to shoot Sims. He's going to shoot himself. He's not going to make a big show of it. Yeah. So you don't think he was actually going to do it because he gave himself a count and then said "eff it" and went to pull the trigger, and little Charlie Sims got in there and pulled, tried to pull the gun away, and of course Slade wrenched it away from him. But do you think he could have gotten it away with, from him, given that it was loaded, cocked into his temple before he pulled the trigger? See, at that point, Slade knew that Charlie was going to stop at nothing to stop him. I, th- I just think it was his last cry for help. Hmm. I think that was subconscious. I don't think that was a conscious thought of his. But he said it himself. You don't want to die. And Charlie's like, yeah, neither do you. He said it a little bit more uh, R-rated than that. Or PG-13 <laughs> rated. What was the actual quote? No, I'm not doing that. This is a podcast for kids. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. But James Rephorn was a big deal in the 90s as a character actor. June Squibb, Oscar nominee June Squibb, who played Mrs. Hunsaker at the Baird School. She outlived, is, is still outliving everybody. She's in her 90s. She outlived her student in Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, by the way, credited as Philip S. Hoffman percent of a woman okay well this was his first major film role and what he said was his breakthrough role he got a career because of this role but he plays pained and tortured really well when uh he does. when his father comes down on him he's like why don't you ask charlie i really think he was closer and it's just so philip seymour hoffman i don't know so philip seymour hoffman <sighs> yeah you can see all the things and then he does the philip seymour hoffman hand when to he's trying to convince charlie that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he has those kind of delicate mannerisms where he's like, he always has like some business like touching his face or someone else's face. That's so funny that you knew exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, that's like Brando. Here's what I didn't didn't really understand watching this as an adult and watching it critically for maybe the first time. I've seen this movie a lot. Like it or not, for a person like Frank, Presenting yourself to men or women is a very different thing. Yes, he talked trash about Gail, Randy's wife, at at dinner right in front of him, but that was to provoke Randy. But every time he actually talks, speaks with a woman, while he may be forward, suggestive, aggressive, he's always sweet and gentle. But with men, he's always, you know, much more brusque and seems like a military man. And that duality is present, I think, in pretty much everyone. It's a different face that you put on for different people. But it didn't really work on me as a kid because I didn't understand what he was saying. And then I found that it doesn't work on me as an adult, even for the dudes. 
like his mannerisms and the way he speaks and what he tries to convey is confounding to me. Gore pulls him over and is like, he's like, you ever been in the officer's club in Da Nang? You know, and, and stuff. And he's like making, oh, good Lord, the Coast Guard. And he's making fun. I get it. That different branches of the military make fun of each other. And he makes him laugh. And then Gore says, your dad is looking good, Charlie. And he lets him go. Does, did it make sense to you? I can't tell if this is a good example or a bad example, because I think the whole car sequence was the most unrealistic sequence of the whole movie. I mean, not only can he not drive, should they, I mean, they (laughs) definitely should have gotten in an accident. Like there's zero chance he made that turn. Zero chance that whatever neighborhood that was of New York, Dumbo or whatever was not. There wasn't a single person, car, pedestrian, nobody, nothing on the street that would obstruct him. Very unrealistic. And then it culminates with the very unrealistic scene with the cop. I thought that he was pretty successful with a lot of the with a lot of his sweet talking, but not with the cop. Cops see so much BS day in and day out and they see the worst in people that I don't I don't think that he would have had the patience to entertain Slade the way he does. So not just Gore, but also Freddie Bisco, who's like, Yeah, you, you made me laugh, but I can't let you take the car out. And then somehow he lets him take the car out. You're talking about the whole car sequence, top to bottom, being unrealistic. It kind of culminates with the gore, the gore scene, yes. Freddie Bisco, I could kind of see, especially because they were like kind of peers. They were men who maybe understood them, understood each other a little bit more. I, I couldn't tell throughout if people believed that Slade was well-to-do. I mean, because he was obviously going on a bender and like spending all, all of the pension that he's been saving up. At least that's what I believed. Disability. It seemed like everyone bought it, that he was. Yeah, his military career didn't really aff- afford him anything practical, right? Like, he, he, if he had his money, he was doing it up in New York big time. And then by the time when he got hurt, then he had nothing. It seems like maybe he was living that baller lifestyle because he, so? di- because he didn't have reserves to fall back on. And he had lots of money, but it seemed like he was blowing it because he ended up in the garage in the backyard with his with his family. And yes, he needed to be cared for. But I think that if he had money, that he could have sold his assets and he would have had someone like, you know, a military therapist or someone. It didn't have to be those people. So I get the sense that he was not exactly frugal. Hmm. But I agree. He liked the high high life and it seemed like his hustle was in play. And so that always seemed like it what maybe was just something I didn't understand. I wasn't worldly enough to understand how his charm came across or how he affected people. But I'm pretty sure that it was all a hustle. I guess the most convincing hustles were people who wanted something from Slade, who namely his money. Like, you know, Manny is thoroughly charmed by him, but he also got a great tip from Slade and all of the obsequious, you know, service workers at the Waldorf Astoria and the restaurants and stuff like that's their job to defer to their clientele. To believe what they say. Sure. Even if they're knowingly playing along with the ruse. What I did not understand is why anybody at Baird indulged Slade to the extent that he did. Like Trask tries to, he does, he gavels him a couple times or whatever, (laughs) but the fact that they let him speak. Nothing can shut him up. Is that what it is? They just couldn't stop him? Well, that's what Slade said to Charlie. Trask was gaveling him and the, the entire auditorium erupted into cheers. And he said, nothing can shut him up because the gaveling wasn't helping. If that's the closest they had to a court, it was nothing because there's no judge that would have stood for that kind of outburst. I mean, I get it. This was his moment and 
this is where he gets to chew like completely unhindered. <laughs> but whoa. Was he really that out of pocket? All he did was suggest that he might have burned the entire school down. <laughs> He's shouting fuck you to the students and stuff. It's a little yes. bit unhinged. Totally. Like the the fact that they would. I think people would have been. People are maybe just a little bit more jumpy today. They would have called security on him. <laughs> yeah. We've had a few too many school shootings and stuff since then. I wonder, did he pack his 45 into the disciplinary committee meeting? Dude, that's like his partner. They never surrendered the right? 45. It, it was also noted in one thing that I read that he he also didn't declare it with the skycap or whatever when they were on on their way to New York. Oh, so the nerds noted that on IMDb. Yeah, something like that. He probably had it all disassembled. Plus, that was different. Those those days were different too, because you could just walk up to the gate even without a ticket. Remember those days? So weird. So weird. You know what's weird? What makes this movie, you know what the most unrealistic part of this movie was for me? What? They get home. So he already goes home and then doesn't go home. He returns for the fourth act at the Baird School. But at the very, very end, he pulls up in a limo and Willie and Francine are out on the driveway, which means the Rossies are already well home. No sign of Frank. He's just gone. Nobody raises an alarm. She doesn't come out screaming and freaking out, wondering where her dad was or Uncle Frank or whatever. They just they just don't care that the crazy dude has disappeared. That's a good point because that was never in the plan. He was always supposed to just be there. <laughs> so do we want to talk about feminine hygiene and uh, the portrayal of women in Scent of a Woman? Mm, well, what is Scent of a Woman? I'm hoping that the thing to which this title refers is a good thing and not a bad thing, since you brought up hygiene in particular. More like Castile soap than like funky, warm morningness. It is Ogilvy Sister Soap. That's amazing. I'm a Dr. Bronner's 100% pure Castile soap kind of gal. Okay. So what about feminine hygiene in Scent of a Woman? He goes on and on about burying your face in curls and he's sniffing women all over the place anytime one's like in the scene. And overall, every woman is sexualized. I highly doubt that scent of a woman passes the Bechtel test. No, probably not. Um, the fact that Slade calls both his granddaughter and the flight attendant tail <laughs> doesn't really do a lot for Slade's likability. This is what I'm saying. It's probably the most dated part of Scent of a Woman. Mm, yeah, but again, I do think that it was unflinching and real. As much as you don't like it, they're not watering down Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. He That's how dudes are and it's not what that what they present if you're speaking to them face to face but he was uncensored with charlie in a way that he wouldn't have been in front of any of his female counterparts in this movie but it seemed to me that scent of a woman is what i expected him to say or what they were inferring and maybe said in the book when he is saying give me one reason not to do it and he says, I'll give you two. You can dance a tango and drive a Ferrari better than anyone I've ever seen. This idea of, you know, the woman still being there and warm and, and, and smelling her in the morning. And he says, I finally gave up on it. I don't know why you can't have that. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's the thing to live for is for companionship and understanding. So he's not in the dark all the time is the best I can figure for the title of this movie. Yeah. I think it's tied to his self-perception of badness. I think that he thinks he doesn't deserve it or that no woman would want him because he's bad. 
But you know, remember at the top of this episode when I said this seemed like a dad movie and I asked if you had watched it with dad? I don't think I ever did. Well, I realized just now that this is not a dad movie, like a Midnight Cowboy, Bronx Tale, like dad favorite movie. Definitely not Midnight Cowboy. He likes Midnight Cowboy, doesn't he? I don't think so. Have you ever seen Midnight Cowboy? <laughs> Are you talking about Drugstore Cowboy? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> is Which one? So is, is Midnight Cowboy the one with John Voight? Yeah. Yeah, no, the other one. Yeah, we should review Midnight Cowboy. And then we'll call Dad and see what he thinks about Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> this is not a Bronx tale, like, I love this movie, Dad movie. This is like a Dad movie in the sense that Slade's kind of like Dad. In his, I mean, dad's not a smooth talking ladies man. Well, I don't know. He's not into watering down who he is. Or his Jack Daniels. The dudality. dude The dudality. This is a movie that reminds me of dad as opposed to a movie that dad would like. And a very strange Thanksgiving movie pick here at O or whatever movies, but still a good one. And your final rating is? Man. Um, I wavered a little bit on this movie but in good terms this movie is compulsively quotable and like i said nice and rounded and not all pat and tied up in a neat bow it's hard to get away from this movie and to hate frank who in some ways is detestable i like this movie very much but there's enough wrong with it that it's not a classic for everybody because it's disturbing. The redemption is not enough, I don't think, to save this movie and bring it into holiday feel-good territory. It was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Al Pacino did win. It's kind of like a, like a Scorsese movie. It's incredible. Do you know that the Baird School scene happens after the two-hour mark? Um, well after. This movie is two hours and 36 minutes long. But the thing is, it doesn't feel like that. I was shocked by how long this movie actually is because it, it seems to fly by for me. This is absolutely an all right movie. It's got a lot of the complexities of real drama that aren't meant to tug at heartstrings or to, I don't even know that it was geared to, to win awards or whatever, but I'm not sure that aside from Al Pacino's remarkable performance and everyone holding their own actor-wise, that this is a totally movie because it's too in the middle. And for you to truly love it, you kind of need to be in the dark, in a dark place with Frank Slade. A good, all right movie, and also this year's Thanksgiving movie, hear it or whatever movies what other movies have we covered for thanksgiving wes uh planes trains and automobiles we covered dutch which was not available anywhere and is actually now on max or at least it was the last time i checked dutch is now streaming so check those out along with 200 plus other discussions at or whatever or wherever you get podcasts and if you enjoyed this episode of scent of a woman Please give us a top review at your wherever you listen to this podcast and let us know. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric 
Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.